I guess that is the thread that I'm very, I am very open to influences that come into my life, you know, and I respond to them. Hello and welcome to the Art Guide Australia podcast with Tiani Mikus. This episode is the fifth in an ongoing series called The Long Run, where I speak with artists who've had careers spanning 60 years, finding out what changes across the decades. And this episode is with Suzanne Archer. Based just outside of Sydney in Wedderburn, Suzanne has long created layered, often mysterious drawings and paintings alongside sculptures and installations, often looking at nature, mortality, disgust and decay. Born in Surrey in the UK, Suzanne moved to Australia in 1965 and has since gone on to win numerous awards, including the Wynne and Nobel Prizes. Suzanne is very generous and very open with her answers, and we start by talking about how Suzanne's immediate environment in Wedderburn pervades her art practice, and what she feels about the idea of being called a female painter. We also talk about having children and an art practice, how mortality plays out in her work, and getting away from traditional portraiture, as well as what it's like for her to have recently reflected on a career of 60 years. And before we get started, a very kind thank you to our sponsor for this series, Leonard Joel Auctioneers and Valuers, based in Melbourne and Sydney. I thought we could start by talking about nature and where you are right now is your home studio in Wedderburn, just outside of Sydney, in a quite bushy area. And I know it's a source of motivation and inspiration for your work. And I'm curious what you notice or feel in such an environment and how that might come into the drawing or the painting. Well, the thing is, I've actually visited Wedderburn um, for many years because I know some of the artists who live down here. And the opportunity to sort of purchase some land came up as a uh, a suggestion that we might, uh, because I'm actually married to David Fairbairn, who's also an artist, and we had the opportunity to maybe buy into some land, but we looked over that and we decided, no, we wouldn't go there. But we often stayed at the artist's places when they were off travelling overseas or something. We would come down from the city w- when we were living in Balmain, and that gave us the opportunity to realise that we really wanted to go bush. And so when we went back into Sydney, um, David started looking through the newspapers and he came across a five-acre block which had been put up for sale. And so he came down and had a look at it and it seemed that it was a a possibility. So then I came down with him and we walked over the block and it was just a really beautiful piece of bushland, five acres on the edge of the gorge and at the bottom in those days it used to have a really beautiful sort of billabong when it poured with rain it filled up and overflowed and continued on its way that subsequently did get changed because uh, some of the river unfortunately did get blocked but it's a a spectacular area and we actually used to be able to climb down the gorge and sit by that pond and it would be full of frog noises and birds would be swooping in and out and it was just that wonderful feeling of being isolated from the sort of situation that we lived in where we'd lived in Balmain. It was a very busy place and here we were really much more in touch with nature. I started then thinking about, you know, oh, well, if I move down here, you know, what am I going, you know, how am I going to deal with this environment? But meanwhile, when we actually made the move, we made with a four-day-old baby. (laughs) So it it sort of changed things slightly. Anyway, we shared that relationship, the experience 
together very much so, so that I was a, um, David would mind the baby and I would go off and manage to get some hours in painting or sculpting. In fact, I made quite a bit of sculpture during that time and it was very much about having the child. But it was also made, uh, quite a bit of it was made from bits and pieces of timber that I collected in the bush. So it was a slightly one step removed relationship with the landscape at that stage. So then as as we settled, we finally put up a super farm shed, which was a quite a large building. And we divided this into two with very strong wall between the two of us. And um, David would enter from one end and I'd enter from the other. And of course, people would say to me, why haven't you got a joining door and a joining door? And we go, no way. You know, when we're in our own studios, we're busy working on our own work. And then, of course, gradually, I became totally absorbed with the landscape. And that became very much where my, my paintings were focused for quite a long time. Walking through the landscape, as I say, cl climbing down the gorge and having that sort of experience... I started to just absorb a lot to do with the landscape. And although my work is quite abstract, it's an abstract interpretation of the landscape. So I would also occasionally do watercolours, which were much more referential. Really, it was about the abstraction in the work. The landscape has been a, a large background for any other works I've done. I, I've always just painted and worked in 3D or whatever as I felt like it. I haven't structured my career as such. I've just, if I felt like painting a landscape, I painted a landscape. If I felt like painting something that was much more strange, I did that too, you know. I sort of just wanted to maybe just even just take it back just a step. Yeah, sure. To you being in the environment, because the, the critic and the art historian Rex Butler wrote of your work, it is though Archer is trying to fill her work with all of the world <laughs> to produce a life within the painting that would match which that which she sees during her daily walks through the forest. And I wondered if that felt true to your experience, that that's you're trying to make painting match that feeling. Oh, well, I think, yes, I think so, but not consciously so. I think that that is something that's just inherent because I've lived in the bushland now for so long that periodically the landscape becomes the background and the setting for a lot of my work, although I might bring in some other strange imagery and that um, is supported by the landscape because it is what I look at all the time. As I'm sitting here talking to you, I'm actually, look, you know, I can look out, I can turn around and look out the window at a very beautiful background of trees and, you know, rocks and things. So it's, it's kind of there all the time with me. When I'm actually painting, I think the thing is, that my paintings are quite busy paintings. And this is really what walking through the bush is like. When you're walking through fairly dense bush, you have no sense of the horizon. And I think Con mentioned at one stage that he could see that in my paintings because often the abstraction has eliminated that horizon line. And that is because I am so embedded in the bush when I'm walking in it. So that's why the it, it often wraps itself around all the other subject matter and it becomes very, it is very busy and people can interpret it very much as landscape, the background in my work. Yeah. A few painters I've spoken to who capture the landscape in more, I guess, abstracted ways have talked about how that's necessary because what the eye is capable of seeing, capable of seeing like the realist landscape, that's 
that's not enough in painting to truly convey the actual experience of that landscape? Well, I, I, you know, I agree with that, except that I think a lot of artists step outside the landscape and view it from a distance. So a lot of paintings are about seeing maybe a few trees and shrubs and some flowers or whatever, and then hills in the background or the lake in the background or the mountains in the background. Whereas what I'm really about is getting scratched on my face as I walk through the bush. It's about that experience of being deeply in it and not um, as an observer looking at it. Also, a lot of people who paint about landscape visit the landscape. They aren't people who dwell in the landscape. Whereas for me, it's about being really at one with the landscape because it's so much part of my environment. You know, I'm surrounded by it. I mean, I go up to the mailbox. I'm walking up looking at trees and shrubs. You know, it's like... It's a very different experience. And ironically, I know you want to keep me on this path, but I'm just going to say that that was the shock to me when I came to Australia and got to go and live with landscape because that's what I did when I first arrived here. So I think the the thing is that's why probably from an offshore perspective, when people hear about Australia, they think it's about this landscape. You know, they don't understand that, of course, we have quite large cities too. You know, it's how people understand places. And for me, it's been so much about, yeah, living in the landscape. Because you did grow up in England. And when you were growing up, was there, I guess, attention in your family to things like the landscape or to art and culture? Not really. My father, when I was a young child and had sort of art homework, was very supportive of it and was very interested in what I was doing. And ironically, when I did get to the age of about, I suppose, 13 or 14, my parents moved because they were very anxious about me sleeping in a room that had oil paint in it, for instance. So they moved house and they found a house that had a very small room just off of the garage And that was nominated as my studio. And so I was able to, from this very early age, have a studio. And I'm sure that must have contributed a lot to my sense of self. And my father um, got me like an architect's drawing board that could drop down flat against the wall and actually, you know, really did um, support me in setting that space up. And I suppose that is the thing that I've always been very confident about my sense of self as an artist because... I started so young. I actually did at the age of at 11, they had something called the 11 plus, And that sort of sorted people out who were very academically bright, so-called, you know, at 11. I don't know how they know. But anyway, those kids went on to, to like grammar, what we called grammar schools in England. And the rest of us just carried on at the schools, um, like secondary schools. And at the age of 13, you had an opportunity to nominate some other interest areas. So... I actually said that I wanted to do, would you believe, domestic science or art, art being the preference. And what it meant was I went to a school, I got into that, and I went to a school at 13, which was like a junior art school. So as well as doing all your normal academic subjects, you always you also got to do lots of art subjects as well. So I, I did sort of wood engraving and painting and drawing. And so there was, there was a, a really good opportunity to reinforce my interest area. And that went for two years. Art one was the first year. And in art two, we had to go up to the local art school, which was Sutton and Cheam School of Art. 
on a Saturday morning and do life drawing. And then it was naturally expected that we would then gravitate to full-time to being a full-time art student. And that's exactly what I did. But I started at the art school, and within a couple of weeks, I met Roy Jackson, and he was in the year ahead of me. And we fairly quickly formed a relationship, and we were to continue on until we actually eventually got married and had a child and then got on the boat with this three-month-old baby and came to Australia. Now, we came to Australia. And can I also just say, you were 19 when you were doing that as well, which is so young. I was 19, yeah. I know, I can't believe it. I thought I was so (laughs) mature then. (laughs) But um, the interesting thing was that Roy, when he started at the art school, earned very quickly the name The Aussie because he had just returned from Australia because he'd immigrated years before with his parents. And he really wanted to come back and study art. So that's how I I came to Australia because he wanted to come back. And I was up for anything that would take me away from the life I had then. <laughs> Compared to what was happening in England in, in contemporary art at the time, what was your impression of Australian art? Because obviously at the time you were arriving, so many Australians are kind of fleeing overseas. Well, they were going, yeah, they were going, but they weren't leaving like they do now. <laughs> it was it was a different scene then. It was such a small scene here. You know, like the galleries, you know, you had Clune Galleries and Waters and Kimberknife and Hungry Horse, um, Central Street Gallery, Blacksland Gallery. You know, there, there were a lot of galleries here, really, considering that there would have been a lot less artists. But, um, and that, uh, that's only Sydney I'm talking about. And I think I was, I was very young and also I had a child. So my opportunity to, and I was living down the south coast in Thrall and that uh, we had a little tiny sort of humpy type of house, which we used to dream about when we were in England. It was not far from the sea and it was quite amazing what we had and I used to paint and share my my studio with my daughter it was her bedroom in those days thank goodness I was only using acrylic (laughs) but yeah so going into the city for me to look at galleries was actually fairly minimal I spent most of my days painting it's amazing that I achieved what I did really given that I had a young child and then as you say you know like there were artists who were leaving and going off overseas, but I probably wasn't particularly aware of them. And I think I was fairly, I was fairly intent on trying to sort out my own painting. I don't know why, but I was. And I spent a lot of time doing that and occasionally going into the city until about 1960 seven when I decided it was time to find a gallery to show my work and I mean I was just really so young and I decided I was going to have to go around the galleries and so I went around the galleries in those days you just had photograph slides to show people. So is that what you did in sort of the late 60s you just took your slides around to galleries and just took your slides around just brashly walked in and said oh, could you have a look at these, please? I'm trying to get a show, you know. And it's it, that is literally what it was like. You'd never do that now. They, they'd, you know, be disgusted at that kind of approach. But I went to Clune Galleries and Rex Irwin was managing it in those days. And I went in there and I got a 
excitement, which was amazing. And he said, oh, look, I'll have to take your images upstairs and um, show them to the guy who owned the gallery at that time, Frank McDonald. And he said, oh, look, we'll take a couple of works in to stop. So that was enough for me. I thought, well, this is really positive. So I think Roy borrowed a car a couple of weeks later and I took the work up to them. And it was pouring with rain, pouring <laughs> buckets. And we had to put these works on the roof. Oh, and they were all thoroughly wrapped up, tarp over the top and everything. Took them up there, had to get them off in, you know, quickly get them off. I think it had probably stopped raining at that point. And take them in, unwrap them. And there was no image oh, no. on them. They had got so damp that all the PVA or whatever it was I'd used in the paint had risen to the surface and put this oh, milky no. film over the top of them. And um, I was in a bit of a panic and Roy said to me, don't panic, we'll go off and have coffee. They will be fine when they dry <laughs> out. And I don't know what I don't know what Rex thought about it. But anyway, we went back an hour later and they were completely dry and everything was fine. <laughs> but that was my introduction to, a, to a, my first commercial gallery. Anyway, I went back home, left these works with them. And very soon I got a telegram because we didn't have a phone. So I got a telegram saying, would I like to be in a two-person show with an artist called Julia Scher? And so suddenly it was all going to happen and I had my first solo show at Kloon Galleries. And that had a lot of media attention oh, and a lot lots. of success. And, I mean, I looked at the photos and you look very cool and young and glamorous. Oh, very young. But if you read the, if you read the stories, they're, um, they're not so uh, intellectual. <laughs> but I did, get, I did get a lot of attention and I also was on the on the TV. So all that publicity was really good for me. And I sold a few works. But I mean, the thing is, the works were so cheap in those days, you know, a few hundred dollars, you know. But the irony is that I had a show um, in 2019, I think it was, at the Campbelltown Arts Centre, and borrowed a couple of those works for for the exhibition. It was a retrospective. And I had a painting that is in Wollongong collection called Private Grounds. And that was from 1967. And then one from which was from the two-person show. And then in 1969, I had another painting called Deep Into Gracia Ditches, which was owned by someone who very kindly drove the painting up from Victoria so that it could be included in the show. And he realised that the materials I was using were such poor materials. I was using a lot of news, those posters that they have outside um, the news agents that advertised, you know, the has Daily Telegraph and then the headline of the day on it. And I had used a lot of those as collage in the paintings. And of course, the yellow, the the paper had yellowed incredibly. So they had taken on this rather sort of golden to brown sheen rather than what would have been quite light in those days. But it was so good to see those works. You know, there's nothing like visiting a really old painting that you haven't seen for years and you've just, all you've got is very bad photos. All I had of those was very bad black and white prints. So to actually see the works was was remarkable, really. Yeah, I can imagine. And it seems like at that time, you were sort of almost marketed as, as this quite cool, interesting female painter. And I wondered how being a female painter, has that affected your career over the last 50, 60 years? I don't actually think it has. I, I No, I don't think it has. And I actually hated it when I was described as a 
a female painter. You know, I found that sort of awful. I just wanted to be known as a painter. And I still feel like that. I still just want to be seen as a painter. I don't like the attachment of the gender to it from me personally. And I don't think I ever had an issue with it. I think I was, I would dare to say I've always been taken quite seriously about the work that I produced, even as you you know, when I was very young, I was taken seriously, and I was showing with the young contemporary in the young contemporaries exhibitions at Blacksland Gallery, you know, over several years, and I won quite a number of prizes, even though I was very young, and this continued through has continued through my career, and I've been fortunate that I've had tremendous support from the Australia Council. I have never really I. I don't think I've ever really felt prejudiced against because I was a woman. It's more just life, you know, like what you do. I'm mean, like, I've had three children in my career in amongst all of, you know, everything else. I mean, how do you do it? A lot of me and my friends are at the age where we're contemplating children and we're just like, how do women have like a career in this amazing life and then are mums at the same time? Well, I think for me, it was the the art had come first and it was very much established in my psyche and I wanted to have children. So the children had to fit in with, with the art and certainly with my last child, well, I, I suppose mostly the, the fathers had been involved. That does help. I mean, you know, one has short relationships and has a child and another short relationship and has another child and then has another child and a really long relationship. So, I mean, I've, I've been with David for over 30 years. So it's, and we're both artists. So we both understand what the business of making art is. And we've raised, we raised our son and he's, he's off doing his thing. And, you know, now we are, we have more time. <laughs> <laughs> There's often this quite, ideological and I guess formal divide for some painters and drawers between abstraction and figuration. And I guess that was maybe particularly potent in the 60s. And your style seems to to really almost sit right between the two. And I wondered if that divide or those debates ever affected you at all. Um, no, not really. It's it's interesting. I mean, I've shown with a number of galleries and it hasn't seemed to bother them at all that I moved between the two. I, for me, as I was, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I just go with whatever I want to do. And I love ideas. I really love ideas. So if I suddenly think, oh, I could do that or I could do that, I can't settle till I've had a go at it and done it. There's a drawing derangement and it won the 2010 Nobel Prize and it captures your studio with your severed head hanging from a hook and there's these objects and animal carcasses surrounding you. Where does an image like that come from? And I mean, the way it's been written about, uh, people align it quite a lot with death. Is that something that you feel? Or? Yeah, that I'm actually, in, you know, I am interested in that aspect of probably more from a positive perspective in terms of the life after death. So you've got, you know, like I have all these wonderful specimens in my studio and that kangaroo 
that's in that in that drawing you're talking about you can see there's a kangaroo there it's hanging it actually is physically hanging up in my studio and there's another thing that looks like a horse's head which is actually a found piece of timber that I that I got in in my bush here and um, it looks so like a horse's head I added a leather tongue to it I think it's up on the right hand side I haven't got the image handy but um, that is more of a sculptural piece but it's more how I see, like you see things afterwards, they're no longer alive. They've got another life after death and it's really beautiful, you know, and it's really intriguing. And I suppose in terms of death, it's not a, it's definitely not a morbid perspective on it. It's more from the animals as a subject. It's more about me seeing the beauty in their afterlife. And in terms of myself, of course, aging is something when you get a lot older you do start to contemplate how you are aging and how things are changing and what the self really means and this is something that I I became quite interested in and did some reading on and made quite a lot of works about the whole internalization of my self self being a cap in capital letters so it wasn't myself it's my self and so I got very interested in that and and of course part of that for me is the aging process and looking back and I I'm sure you realize that in 219 I put together with um, help of of Sugar side and a very good designer Alison Bell um, put together a book about my work and of course you can see how mixed my subject matter is in that book reflecting on the past and how interesting and quite emotional it is when you actually start looking back to try and find out who you were when you were young and in order to fill out my the story about my history as a person and an artist I had to look right back and it's, it was a, a real education and then starting looking back at the early work and dredging everywhere that I could possibly find the old work was was incredible I had it was it was pretty emotional but it was also amazing to look at one's life like that you know and then to have someone else organize it all into some perspective in a book can I go back just a little bit to that question about death because something that just occurred to me is are you painting death from the point of view that it's imaginable in some way or is it the complete unimaginability of it? I don't think I've gone quite into it in that way that I'm I'm concerned about it. I think I'm more of an observer. Um, so as I was saying, when I'm painting about death, it's really more about the animal remains that I've been intrigued by and then the fact that I married my head with it, I guess is partly because I'm there and if I'm looking at this whole environment, in fact, I think my head was added quite late in the piece in that drawing that you were talking about, the one, the Dobell. I think I threw it in there to disrupt the what was really fairly true to the studio. No, they were things in my studio. I, I like sometimes in my work to look around the studio and see something hanging up 
and just put that into the painting or the drawing at the time. And then I'll look over in another area and I'll see something else and I'll do the same thing. And then I might move whatever I put in there later and put it somewhere else. It's all in a state of flux until I decide that's, you know, that's where something has to be. But I, I don't think I've looked at death. I don't think I've looked at it in a morbid way. I think it's more curiosity and observation and yeah, I don't, I don't think I've quite got to that point yet. That sense of intuition that you're talking about, you, you once said that when you're doing a self-portrait um, that you're looking for a much deeper and much more psychological version of yourself. And I was wondering, how do you know that you've gotten to that level of depth that you're intuitively seeking? I think what I don't want is the cliched version. A lot of the time when people are painting portraits, they're presenting a fairly pleasing image. And that's because what they're doing is they're trying to project this pleasant, nice image of this person, almost like a good photograph. I'm much more interested in the times that you pull faces, you know, like putting makeup on or crying or screaming or, you know, like I'm interested in the way the the face can be depicted in so many other ways. I find just the stillness of someone sitting posing for someone is not really very exciting to me. I'm much more interested in trying to present something that really, really makes you go, oh, what's wrong with them? Why are they do why are they pulling that face? You know, that you actually react to and you think, oh God, are they frightened? Are they, you know, are they scared of something or are they trying to repel us or what are they doing? You know, I want to do something different. I think I'm always striving for something that's different. And in doing that, I feel like your paintings can be recognized through how dense and layered they are. And I'm wondering what's happening in your painting process when you're bringing together a lot of differing elements and styles. I don't know if it's actually differing styles so much as the way whatever I'm dealing with requires some different handling of the paint or the drawing materials. Like I might decide, oh, I'm going to work with some thinner paint. I'm going to see what happens. You know, I'm really, I really want to keep experimenting. I don't want to settle into a formulaic way of working. I like the idea that I'll try and keep the paint thinner with the next two or three paintings, or I'm going to really use wax next time in my paint as my medium, or I'm going to build the paint up to be really thick and see what happens. And I do this periodically. So I might work for, a f- you know, quite a few paintings might be worked in one method and then I'll change. That's what it is. It's more about the method of working than is the style. And also it could be mistaken for style because the subject is so different. So if I'm dealing with the landscape and I'm in this environment, as I described it to you, and I'm really sort of throwing the paint on because I'm thinking about all of the interweaving of the branches and the light coming through or the darkness with stars or, you know, just something is leading me with the way that I'm going to use the paint. Then I think that could be seen as a different style of working, but I don't think it is. I think it's all there. It's just different ways of interpreting or expressing what I'm actually focused on at that time. When you are, I guess, trying to push yourself so much as an artist and, you know, you've been doing that from the 1960s to now, does the practice 
does it does every does the practice or the the questions or the investigations that you're looking into do they feel the same across those different methods or, or do things change no I think they've changed I think when I was very young because I was using a lot of collage anyway I think they were they were very very intuitive and I just worked the paintings and I'd say that's done and then I'd do another one and it was done. And they were very intuitive and they took a bit of time, but not the time that my paintings take now. I mean, if you ever look on Instagram, you'll see I'm up to day 24 on a painting or whatever. You know, sometimes I'm really building the painting up. It takes a long time. And I changed the painting a huge amount. I mean, it's really funny talking, you know, thinking about Instagram. You know, I get quite a lot of comments where people go, oh, I love that colour, you know, it's beautiful. And I think, ha-ha, it won't be there at the end. And it isn't because it changes. And I, as I say, I move objects around. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Over the years, the work has changed hugely. And as I, I touched on the fact that I, you know, you know that I draw, but I touched on the fact that I, I've also worked three-dimensionally. And what's happening at the moment is in the show that I had at Campbelltown in 2019, where I had repurposed a lot of old bags that I got at secondhand shops, canvas bags. And what I did is I turned them into masks and they stand alone. They actually go over the top of a frame, so they stand alone. And I had a whole set of them, a lot of them, in the show at Campbelltown. And I also made some, and they were like a set, like a crowd of figures. And then I also made some that stood alone. And now I'm starting to think, oh, these are great props. These will come into the paintings now. So other things that are... I have made three three dimensionally as well as standing alone often will pop into another work but it's it's just that I I love playing three dimensionally and I you know I will work with plaster and cloth or I'll work with clay or I'll bang bits and pieces together I just I love it but I you know I can go a long time without doing it and then suddenly I'll wake up one day and think oh I'm going to get the clay out or I'm going to try making a 3D thing, you know. But no, I, I I don't think the thread has has gone through in the same way. The thread is there through all my work from the very beginning. And if you look at the early paintings and you look at what I'm doing now, you can see it. I feel like those threads are almost a little bit formal in a way. And, and I think something I was trying to ask before, and I probably wasn't asking the question right, is and it's maybe at a more, I guess, philosophical level of when you have had such a long career and recently, you know, you have reflected on that career, is is there something where you kind of go, oh, you know, Suzanne Archer's work has been about this from the 1960s onward? Mm, No, I probably say, (laughs) I'd probably say no, um, no, other than it's been what it is people recognise it's probably recognize it because there is something but it's to do with the formal the way the paintings are constructed more than the intent because the ideas behind the paintings have changed a lot like I was fortunate enough to go to China and ended up having a residency there for months and so that was exciting and what I mainly did there because it was only a month I wished I'd gone for longer but I actually made an artist book over there and that gave me, and I also kept another book which had ideas and a record of my time there. And when I came back, I made a huge circle 
which was made up of bamboo steamers, which I collected from everywhere. I think the local Chinese shop could not work out why I kept going back for more steamers. And I think he said to me one day, you must be doing a lot of cooking. <laughs> but I used them to create this three-metre circle and filled, filled it in with various sized steamers. And each one of them had a little vignette which told the story of my time in China. And the outer ring was made up of the lids of those steamers. And I really loved it. I loved doing that. I just fiddled away on this thing. And that was, that's been shown a couple of times. And that, that was just a response to going to China. So whenever I travel, there's a response. So there was a lot of work about Africa when we went to Zimbabwe. I'd come back and there'd be a whole body of work about Zimbabwe. So, you know, I respond, the work responds very much to my experiences and where I am and what I'm seeing and yeah that's where it comes from and I guess that is the thread that I'm very I am very open to influences that come into my life you know and I respond to them And that was Suzanne Archer for this fifth episode of The Long Run. Stay tuned for another episode to be released shortly, and you can listen back to previous episodes with Robert Owen, Gareth Sansom, Wendy Stavrianos, and John Walsley. You can subscribe to the Art Guide podcast on iTunes and Spotify, or otherwise listen at Art Guide online, where you can also keep up to date with art-related features and interviews from across the country.